Well, today is November 19th. We're going to start our second lesson on contentment. And the title of this lesson will be The Elements of Contentment. And I think, um, I think this might be a little more nuanced than is perhaps visible at first glance. So bear with me if it seems a little tedious, but I think we should uh, explore that before we... Uh, before we draw too many conclusions. So, by way of refresher, some of the words that were associated with contentment in our last lesson were satisfaction, happiness, serenity, settledness, sufficiency, fullness, being filled, stoicism, etc. Struck me that in Ecclesiastes 6, that a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity. It is an evil affliction. Um, yikes was the only word I could think of to kind of describe that. And whatever contentment might be, there seems to be a significant mental component to it. We'll look at that a little more today. And I doubt Mick Jagger ever found his satisfaction, no matter how hard he tried. I think to this day he probably doesn't have it, but we should ask him. So if he shows up, we will. So let's take a a look for just a brief moment. We want to define contentment and look at its elements today. And I think it's actually... uh, not so simple uh, a conclusion to draw. So we have this funky word, um, austarkia, that is used in these passages here for the most part for contentment. The, um, uh, the end of 1 Timothy 6 is not, uh, is not austarkia. It's, it's a different one, uh, archaeo. And uh, austarkia... I, I think this is one of these situations where the definition of the word does not actually communicate all the meaning and that we need to look a little more broadly at Scripture to find out some of the implications and some of the things contained in that word through the whole of the Scriptures. So this would be a situation where just focusing on the meaning of this word doesn't actually help us or lead us to completely understand what that word means. And so when... The cornerstone verse of this study is Philippians 4.1. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in soever state I am to be content. And in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And that sufficiency is the same word as content. Um, but you can tell that that's not quite the same thing. So there's a, another meaning, uh, another meaning there that uh, we should look at. And then in First Timothy six six through eight, godliness with contentment, uh, osarchia there, is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clo- clothing, with these we should be content. Uh, and that's a different word than contentment up front there. So if we look at 
the way the word is being used, it's obvious that there's not just one small or simple thing involved in the idea of defining contentment. So uh, in Philippians, Paul describes his condition here in terms of need. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. So he's describing what kind of, what kind of um, how contentment looks to him uh, as he's writing in Philippians. Now, he's, he's writing in all three of these sections using the same word, but he's not saying the same thing each time. So, but he, he says, my, my, uh, my provisions, my physical provisions uh, are not what lead me to be content or to be satisfied. Whether they be few or many, I'm content. So he means something there. And in 2 Corinthians, he, des- he describes his condition from the perspective of grace. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency. Well, that that's obviously doesn't mean an abundance of physical things, right? He's clearly speaking of something else. God has provided something else for him because we know Paul has been in multiple states, states of abundance and states of need. So in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, he's emphasizing something very different in contentment, not just material provisions, but he's, he's thinking about the grace of God. And then when we get down to 1 Timothy, he speaks of the benefits of contentment. He doesn't really say what contentment is. He, he says godliness with contentment is great gain, so there's a benefit to it. It's, it's something he's putting in front of us that should be an inducement or an incentive for us to want to pursue contentment because there's something of great gain here. And then he also offers this contrast by our birth and death. You know, we bring nothing into the world as certain we carry nothing out. And then he says, well, with food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So he describes a material condition, the minimal condition, minimal condition that we would have in order to be content. So contentment's used, described, and applied in different ways through these three portions. And there are other words in scripture, uh, other passages that reference these things. This isn't exhaustive, but it is representative of these ideas of the sufficiency and satisfaction and such that we find. So we... We need, to, uh, we need to look abroad a little bit to find what else might be contained in this idea of contentment. And it's a good thing to do this, but I want to remind you that we're not here trying to impose some external standard on what the scriptures say, that the scriptures are unified in what they're teaching here. And the confession has a very helpful uh, mechanism for us to think about this. And he says, the, 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 the authors wrote, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary, necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men. So, We're going to take a look uh, today at many different ideas surrounding contentment from people who have walked before us and how they have looked at contentment and defined it. And it's defined in a lot of different ways with a great deal of nuance. And we're going to take a look at 
The, um, eventually, we're going to spend our time looking in Scripture for the support of these ideas, but these people wrote and expressed their ideas in a way that I thought was helpful. So we're going to look at it, but we should remember we're looking to the Scriptures alone to define what these things mean, but we're not looking to just a simple word in the Scripture and how it's defined. So there's a difference as to how we're going to go about locating what the meaning of contentment is. So let's first uh, step back for a second, and uh, there are lots of dictionaries, words change over time, um, but I would say probably uh, uh, in the realm of what would be popular or common in terms of how people would look at the idea of contentment, you it would say the state or degree of being contented or satisfied, it could also be pleased. Uh, so sometimes thinking about contentment, you're just pushing back one layer and you might find yourself thinking about being contented. And we're not going to draw distinctions between those two words. It's the same thing. Second one is a happiness in one situation, a satisfaction. Now, here they're describing happiness and satisfaction. I would say synonymously very close to it. That's one of the things they're trying to communicate. And it's a it's, it's this happiness in one's situation, whatever that means. And then the third definition is the neurophysiological experience of satisfaction at being at, at ease in one's situation, body, and or mind. So when you look at these three definitions, we're, we're getting back to the ideas that we talked about when we looked at the word usages of satisfaction, happiness, pleasure. These are all things that come about in the idea of contentment. And I think we could throw a couple other words into the mix. I think you could throw delight in there, and you'd probably be pretty close to what they were getting at. Um, tranquility, maybe another word that we would, could use to describe this. Um, ease might be another word. Um, and in this last definition, you see uh, an attempt to equate the state of contentment with a neurophysiological explanation. This, too, is kind of a popular way, uh, a modern way, I should say, of trying to look at things by um, looking at the activity of the mind, um, but to the neglect of the activity of the soul. And we don't want to reduce the understanding of contentment to be just a neurophysiological response. It's not that. It's more than that. And uh, I, I think we are body and soul, and so it's obviously going to be unified in some capacity. We're not neglecting or saying it has nothing to do with it, but as a rule, uh, it's not going to be reducible to merely a neurophysiological experience. So that's what the dictionary tells us. Um, I think it's pretty self-evident, but I don't think it really pushes, I don't think it pushes the needle closer to the tank on full. I, I'm still left with wondering, well, what exactly does it mean to be happy and satisfied and pleased or at ease or tranquil or filled? Or I, I, I think we've just used more words, but we haven't 
really describe the ideas. I think we've described the words, but not the ideas. So we're going to look at a bunch of definitions this morning of contentment, and we're going to try to find what some of the nuance is. And then the rest of the class, we're going to take apart what are the elements of those definitions so that we can get to the meaning of the idea, not just the meaning of the words. Does that distinction make sense for everybody? Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's look at our good friend, Jeremiah Burroughs. He says, I offer the following description. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So, um, what are some words that jump out at you in that definition? What are some things you see in there? Submit. That was one. What was that? The idea of freedom. 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 Okay. Inward. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. We don't use the word sweet quite nearly enough. What else? Wise disposal. Wise disposal is a helpful adjective there. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Burroughs isn't thinking about the narrow definition of a word, right? He's obviously got much, much more in mind in how we do this. And, of course, his book, The Rare Jewel, is considered a a classic on the idea of of describing contentment. And uh, for reasons I hope to explain later, we're deliberately not following that book in this study. We did that once before, and I'll get to all that later. So... Thomas Watson, he writes, It is a sweet temper of spirit whereby a Christian carries himself in an equal poise in every condition. What does poise mean? How to handle or carry yourself, yeah. Posture, yeah, it certainly involves... It, it's... It has the idea when thinking about posture of the way you're carrying yourself that there's an uprightness, a steadiness. So, maybe stoic. Stoic? Maybe. What was that? Humility. Humility, yeah. Uh, Poise has a meaning a while back of being a graceful and elegant bearing. So a person who is poised would be somebody who is gracefully conducting themselves uh, with whatever it is that they're bearing. Uh, Perhaps composure and dignity of manner. Um, It can also be that uh, to be or cause to be balanced and suspended. So there's a lot in that word poise. Um, Watson has a lot to say on contentment, but... Obviously, that's not the same thing exactly of what Burroughs is saying. So Burroughs is emphasizing some things, and then Watson has some things here. So let's look at William Ames. Ames says, Contentment is a virtue whereby the mind rests in that portion that God has given him. This comes from his morrow of sacred divinity. So what's Ames focus here in his definition. And what God has blessed you with, the gifts he's given you. 
Yeah, that's good. What else? Focused on the mind. Focus is on the mind. Yeah, that's right. What's the mind doing? Trusting God over your own felt needs. Well, it's resting there, isn't it? Which, which of course, also has a wide variety of applications. The mind is resting. So it's also an active description, right? It's not a passive description. It's an active description. The mind is resting. It's interesting. He calls contentment a virtue. He's the first author I found that describes it as as a virtue by itself. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Um, that's helpful. Good. William Gouge. Contentedness is a satisfaction of the mind concerning the sufficiency and fitness of one's present condition. This general manner of contentedness or you could say contentment, a satisfaction of mind does not only put a distinguishing difference between contentedness and covetousness, but also shows that they are diametrically contrary to one another. For a covetous mind is never satisfied with any estate, and a contented mind is never unsatisfied with any. This comes from his work on um, uh, of covetousness, actually. So he's describing contentment in a work on covetousness. We'll get to more of that later. So what stands out in this definition? Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, okay. Yeah. I will not cover that basically makes a man uh, man to be content. Yeah. I like that. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is good. Yeah. What else do you see in here? Yeah, it's helpful. He, he, he writes this uh, looking positively at contentment or contentedness. They're synonymous. It's a satisfaction of the mind. And Dan's describing how covetousness is, an, is a dissatisfaction of the mind. Uh, you might say the mind is in tumult. It's, in, it's, it's not at rest. It's not at ease. The image that comes to 
to my mind, is the foaming sea. It just doesn't stop. It's always, always uh, not in a state of tranquility. So, yeah, that's... Uh, when you think of something like this, the satisfaction of the mind, how does... We just had a series on meditation, so how would meditation and contentment start to intersect? I mean, he clearly puts it, Guj is clearly putting it within the realm of the mind, right? That's, that's, his, that's his definition. Uh, he says it. Satisfaction of the mind. He says it twice there. So, yeah. So how does that interact? How does this satisfaction of the mind, this state of contentment, how does it, how does it intersect with meditation? Or meditating on what you don't have and what you want and, and covetously, then it doesn't create uh, satisfaction, but if you meditate on God's provision and the satisfaction that you have in that, then it causes contentment. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're not meditating on your turn, you won't know that you're being covered. You know, like that you're coveting something or that you're going down that path. Right. Yeah, it, it takes work to determine whether you're coveting, for instance or whether you're contented. It takes its mental energy that has to be put forth. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that intersection? Great, spark something uh, uh, just, uh, the word blindness comes to <coughs> discontent blinds us to so many different things uh, from uh, whatever the, the state is, whatever the That's a good way of putting it. Contentment helps us to, to see more clearly, whereas covetousness, if we're thinking in, in opposites, helps to blind us yeah, in the mind. Yeah? Just to confirm that, not the immediate confirmation, I experienced this greatly. The more severe the suffering or the pain, the uh, object of discontentment and covetousness, the more it feels like it's a um, screen in front like that's all you can see. You, can, you just cannot get, you can't think past it, you can't focus, but all you can see is that thing that's pressing so much. Really blind. Uh, it's, it's very unpleasant. It is, and, and I hope you can begin to appreciate how whatever we need to do to pursue contentment is going to involve the mind. It's going to involve us thinking very clearly and insightfully with whatever contentment is. It's not going to happen outside of that. So, yeah. Well, let's look at uh, Joseph Hall. Do the pictures help? Do you like the pictures? Yeah, I love them. <laughs> Joseph Hall. If there be any happiness to be found upon earth, it is in that which we shall call contentation. This is a flower that grows not in every garden. I don't find this particularly helpful in understanding <laughs> or describing what contentment is. It's a nice turn of phrase, but 
I don't think flowers are metaphor. Flowers are metaphor. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure it's telling me what contentment is, but he sort of describes what it does. What does this flower produce? It isn't pollen. What does the flower of contentment produce? What? What's that? Happiness, yeah. I mean, that's what he he says. If if you're going to find happiness, it's to be to be found in contentment. You'll find happiness in contentment. Well, that's kind of an interesting idea. That contentment is this thing that when you understand and become content, one of the derivatives of contentment is the idea of being happy. Satisfied is one of the words we used, and happiness is one of the words that we saw being uh, translated. So it's, I don't think happiness and contentment are exactly the same thing, but it does appear that happiness is a derivative of contentment. So I'm content with that, uh, pleased or satisfied with that uh, that idea, but does that make sense to you guys? Does that pass muster with this group, that happiness is a derivative of contentment? Can we say that? So there's a sense in which we wouldn't pursue happiness. Happiness would be the byproduct of what we pursue in contentment. So we're not, we're not aiming for happiness, but we're going to acquire happiness. That would, In my mind, that's a helpful way of distinguishing all of it. I think the pursuit of happiness could be problematic across a variety of spectrums. Yeah. I think it also says that it's not very common. So, so that was my next point. Why, why do you say that? What, what, what made you observe that in this quote? Well, not everybody has a flower. <laughs> you know? Not everybody has a, a garden. You know? Not many people complain that they're Right. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. Uh, to me, it begs another question. Um, where does it grow? It's one thing to just say, well, look, you know, you're going to find this everywhere. This is a rare plant. Okay. Which is what Burroughs calls it by analogy. He calls it a rare jewel. Uh, Hall is calling it a rare plant. You might maybe have to go to South Africa and dig a big hole to find some rare jewels, right? Uh, or Arkansas, I think, has some. You can, you can dig there, but where do you where do you go to find the rare plant? <laughs> go to the meditation garden. Now that's just hilarious. <laughs> to go to the meditation garden. I really like that. Very beautiful, but have an awful stink when I think about the. List of things that Paul said: he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was whatever. I don't know how much happiness was there, yeah. but it was definitely a unique flower. Yeah, that's that right. Him to be, thought him to be content. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, true. Yeah. Yeah, it's a flower that has to be planted and cultivated. That's good. We cultivate a lot of things. We cultivate a lot of things. It also would appear to me that we use a lot of Roundup. 
Well, that's really good. Uh, so this is, I'm going to read the whole quote, but here are the, here are the money sections, as they say, um, on a sermon or a pamphlet. I can't tell quite what he did. Um, but this is, a, this is more for discussion uh, and, and to show how we've got to be a little careful in what we say because I think we can go off the rails if we don't understand the words the right way. So uh, you wouldn't want to take these quotes out of context is the point. To be content is to be rich and well off. He is the rich man who has no wants and requires no more. I ask not what his income may be. A man may be rich in a cottage and poor in a palace. To be content is to be independent. He is the independent man who hangs on no created things for comfort and has God as his portion. Such a man is the only one who is always happy. Nothing can come amiss or go wrong with such a man. Afflictions will not shake him. Sickness will not disturb his peace. He can gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles, for he can get good out of evil. Like Paul and Silas, he will sing in prison with his feet fast in the stocks. Like Peter, he will sleep quietly in a prospect of death the very night before his execution. Like Job, he will bless the Lord even when stripped of all of his comforts. I have benefited a great deal from Ryle over the years. Uh, I think this is very much in tune with what you would expect in a 19th century writer, uh, the way he words things by analogy. Uh, if you've read much 19th century stuff, you've read a bunch of Ryle, this is how he would talk, but he would also say a lot more. In today's climate, I think this could be abused. I, I think there are enough phrases in here and wordings uh, that that you would end up going astray. So, for instance, to be content is to be rich and well off. What could possibly go wrong with a statement like that? To be rich and well off. He has no wants and requires no more. Or the man is independent. What could possibly be meant by that? You know, so there's, uh, you wouldn't want to take this out of context and you wouldn't want this to be the sole driver of what contentment means. But it does help illustrate how Ryle was thinking about this. And he's giving us an example at the, at the extremes, right? It's an example of hyperbole to help us understand the nature of contentment. He's rich even though he lives in a cottage. And the guy in the palace could actually be poor. So it's clear he's not talking about just material things. But you have to read and you have to settle down when you encounter a quote like this with, um, with Ryle. Let's go to William S. Plummer. But what is contentment and how may it be known from evil states of mind somewhat resembling it? Contentment is not carelessness or prodigiality. It is not obtuseness of sensibility. It is a disposition of mind in which we rest satisfied with the will of God respecting our temporal affairs, without hard thoughts or hard speeches concerning his allotments, and without any sinful desire for a change. He lived in 1802 to 1880. He describes contentment specifically what it is not. Uh, it is not obtuse toward sensibility. That's a nice phrase. What does it mean? 
What does it mean to be obtuse toward sensibility? Among other things, drunk. Um, possibly. I don't think that's what he's getting at, though. I mean, a person would be in that condition. Um, but I don't think that's what he's getting at. If you were obtuse towards sensibility, what would that look like? Not caring. I, 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 think, I think not caring is part of it. I think it's also uh, kind of thinking more along the stoical lines. Like, I can just take it. Uh, I, I don't care what I need. I have enough. I'm, I'm not trying to improve my lot. I'm not being diligent. I'm, there, a, a person who has disregard for his condition is not necessarily being content, right? So a lazy person might be obtuse. Uh, in a moral sense. So, what do you think hard thoughts and hard speeches refer to? Hard thoughts and hard speeches. This is actually really important. We're going to spend probably a whole class on this. It's, who would you be talking to with your hard thoughts and hard speeches? He warns against it. talking to God. He said, look at, the, look at the will of God, being satisfied with the will of God, respecting our temporal affairs without hard thoughts or hard speeches, specifically to God about those temporal affairs. We're going to look at that uh, at quite, quite in length later on. So here's Thomas Jacom. We are to consider contentment as it imports calmness and composedness of mind in every condition, stillness and sedatedness of spirit under all occurrences of providence. When a man likes whatsoever God does to him or with him, this is contentment. So he's putting forth a very positive picture of what contentment looks like. And for the sake of time, I'll just read our notes. So... This composedness of mind is a phrase he uses that I didn't catch with anybody else. You get the idea of um, serenity, calmness, tranquility, stillness, this composedness of mind. There's also this stillness and sedatedness. Now, the sedatedness is not going back to what we just read with Plummer about the uh, obtuseness of sensibility, but the sedatedness is somebody who has been quieted down on the inside, sort of more synonymous in, I, in meaning with stillness. But I particularly like these two prepositions he uses. When a man likes whatever God does to or with him, that uh, he has a state of contentment. So let's look at, uh, kind of go through this quickly here. Hebrews 13.5 doesn't define contentment. And what it is, it, defi- it defines it by way of contrast. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Covetousness and contentment, as John Owen says, are inconsistent in the same mind in any prevalent degree. Hebrews 13 is, is telling us when you look at this, the spectrum of contentment, you'll find covetousness on one end and contentment on the other end. 
So if you're going down the road of covetousness, you're leaving contentment behind. You, it's on a spectrum, these, these two ideas. So uh, let's look at what Owen has to say. He says, contentment, though it is not proper... Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's, this contentment is a gracious frame or disposition of mind, quiet and composed, without complaining or repining at God's providential disposals of our outward concerns, envy at the more prosperous condition of others, fears and anxious cares about future supplies, and desires and designs of those things which a more plentiful condition than what we are in would supply us with all. So he goes to this gracious frame of mind, this disposition of mind. He's coming back to what's, what do you have in your head? What are you thinking about? And he says contentment is very, very gracious. It's an important point. Um, he tells us that it's not complaining or repining. Repining is not a word. We should bring back repining. Repining means to be discontented or to be fretting about provision and such. And he says the gracious disposition of mind has no room for that sort of discontent or fretting, that tumult. So I want to, uh, I want to close uh, with the answer to a question that I brought up in the first class that is uh, different. And it's not something I'd really thought about before. Um, but I asked whether contentment was a grace. Uh, and Jonathan argued it was. I said, hold your horses, maybe not quite so fast. <laughs> maybe it is, maybe it's not. And I ran, I encountered this quote from Thomas Watson in his book on the art of contentment. He says, contentment, though it is not properly a grace, it is rather a disposition of the mind, yet in it there is a happy mixture of all the graces. It is a most precious compound, which is made up of faith, patience, meekness, humility, etc., which are the ingredients put into it. That kind of struck me as interesting. So Watson, who you should read lots of Watson, he's very, very good, all the way across the spectrum, very good. But what is he saying? Is contentment merely a word we use to describe an assortment of different graces and understandings that have become lively within ourselves? Or is he saying something else? What do you guys think about this? Though it is not properly a grace, but rather a disposition of mind and a happy mixture of all the graces. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree that it is, it is an effect of you know, the main things, not a cause. Or it's not the it's not like God just gives you grace as if grace in and of itself. It's it's connected to trusting in him. It's connected to Resting in so contentment is an effect. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's not a cause. Yes. I like that. What do you guys think? It takes God's grace to achieve contentment. It takes God's grace to achieve contentment. Absolutely, it does. But rather, if we think about contentment as a singular item, I think we'll approach it differently than if we think of it as an admixture of things. 
maybe it's that, that end product or the sum of all of those ingredients. The end product or the sum of those ingredients? I think that's, I think that's a valid analogy. Um, so sometimes we speak uh, the part for the whole and the whole for the part. And so when Paul says, I've learned contentment, doesn't mean he had to be specifically saying, well, I've learned, as Watson says, patience, meekness, humility. You know, he's, he's describing it uh, with a word that he hopes people will understand uh, as containing more than that. So the reason why I think this is important is if we pursue contentment as a standalone idea without having its composite or constituent elements in front of us, we may end up with stoicism. We, we may end up with a different error on our hands. And I don't think the Bible, the scriptures give us a precise definition of contentment. I mean, clearly, the reformers didn't have a uniform view, a single view. They had different perspectives on what was involved in contentment, which tells me contentment is a rich topic full of many facets that we have to explore to understand what this whole is. Because we don't want to end up in error or shortchanging ourselves over time. So this isn't a class, this, the title of this class is Pursuing Contentment. And it is my sincere aim to help all of you pursue and acquire attentment, contentment. The idea is not to be another entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy about how we differentiate happiness versus satisfaction versus contentment. We're not here to be sort of a reformed Wikipedia, right? That's not the, that's not the idea. But if there's more to contentment than just a single disposition, um, then we should explore with those things what they mean. So, uh, Watson says things like patience, meekness, humility are all part of it. What elements do you think are part of contentment? What would that look like? If we're going to define contentment, uh, we have to have some idea of what's involved underneath the hood. to understand things from God's perspective. Because what we call bad might not be bad. What we call good might not be good. That's very, yeah. Very, very important. Seeing things from God's perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We spend a lot of time on that, actually. Yeah. Do you know, when that talks about, when he talks about it, these being ingredients put into it, you can't work that up. No, you you can't just manufacture these things. They are it's it's all of grace. Yes. It's just not a singular item. We can call it that item, but if we understand it as a as a compound, then I think we're going to get a lot further ahead. A lot further ahead. Um, yes. Yeah, just the driver being faith. Seems like we're kind of touching on this standard struggle between 
God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God says to me this, I, I can say, well, I mean, I, I'll be content when God grants me content. Like, I can't do anything about it, right? So I'm just, I, I'm just waiting for him. And the same argument can be made. And but it's the same thing that happens with faith. Like, well, no, I mean, I can't believe unless God gives me faith. So that this struggle that's always there about my responsibility to pursue something that I can't actually pursue or really won't even have the power to pursue without God's having granted it to me, so I'm tempted to sit back. Just, there's always, in any topic that we can take on, could come down to that. Well, I'll pursue humility. These are the fruits of the Spirit. When He grants those, we have not power Ditches on both sides. Yeah. I want to put two images in your head. Uh, think about this. The first is contentment requires understanding. If we're going to meditate on it, we need to have understanding. We need to understand what's involved. We need to understand what the mixture of items is in this compound we're formulating. And I think we're, we're not going to get to all of them. I'm going to hopefully take three more weeks on three different compounds that I hope have enough overlap between them to present a large enough composite that we can begin, but it's not just putting the pieces together in our head. So we can't walk away like this dude on the left, right? That He's incomplete. So we, we've got to put the pieces together. But then, like the folks on the right, we need to stoke the fire. We need to go pursue contentment. We need contentment is something that can grow. It, we called it a flower earlier. You could call it a fire, too. And a, a fire has different things that it needs in order to grow, right? Uh, some things are necessary and insufficient, and we want to find those elements, put them together, and burn this place down, metaphorically. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. So have two thoughts in your mind as we begin to explore what are the elements of contentment. We've got to put it together in our head, and then we've got to go build a fire out of it, produce contentment. Any other comments before we close it down for the day? Um, I like the slide before when it talks about the ingredients for contentment. I think looking at, at faith and patience and weakness, looking at those <coughs> ingredients, it would, it's uh, helpful to me to, to think that way because then I can look at it and go, my discontent is because of a lack of faith. Or I'm discontented today because I'm impatient. Or you can see where That's a good point. Any other closing thoughts? Just a quick uh, nod to community. It could be that somebody else points out what you're lacking. Uh, it may be as we help one another. You know, am, I, am I willing to see that in, as a mirror from other people in the community or something? Too? That could be a grace to me. Sure. Things I don't see. So would the, would the pursuit of contentment be through prayer to God, asking Him for the, the things that we lack. Yes. Or, or would there be other aspects 
that? Yes to both. Okay. So what I think we want to do is gain understanding of the sorts of things that we should be thinking about so we can pray intelligently. Any other comments? Let's pray.